What a great prayer this morning that the Lord would send his light to dispel the darkness of this world. Could there be any better prayer for us this morning as we go to God's word, as we look at Jesus' statement, I am the light of the world. Our passage today is John chapter 8 and verses 12 through 30. You can find that on page 894 of a pew Bible if you'd like to follow along in one of those. I would encourage everyone to follow along in the scriptures today. It's a lengthy passage, and so I'll begin by reading a portion of it now, and then we'll look at each section in turn during the message. Beginning with verse 12 of John chapter 8, again Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. And skipping to verse 28. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. As He was saying these things, Many believed in him. Let us pray. Father, we live in a very dark world. Without your light, our souls are very dark. And so, Father, our prayer this morning is through your word that you would shine the light of Jesus into our hearts that we might know him better and live to serve him better. Change our lives today into the image of our Savior, we ask in his name. Amen. So today we look at the second of Jesus' seven I Am statements found in the Gospel of John. John is the only of the four Gospels to record these seven I Am statements of Jesus. These titles for Jesus are perhaps so familiar to us as Christians that we barely take notice of them anymore. But for a moment, let's try to put on the ears of a first century Jew, perhaps one who might have even believed that this Jesus could be the long-awaited Messiah. In what context would this individual hear these words of Jesus? How would they process these claims based upon their theological understanding of the Scriptures and of their worldview? Well, let's again set the context of our passage. As we have seen in previous weeks leading up to this in chapters 6 through 8, The Gospel of John concerns itself with events surrounding a week-long celebration of the Jewish nation, known as the Feast of Booths. It was their celebration of the fall harvest, their thanksgiving, if you will. So naturally, much of the focus was upon how God provided and cared for his people. And much of the ritual 
looked back to the time Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years after God delivered them by the hand of Moses from Egypt, from slavery. They remembered and celebrated different aspects of that part of their history. Leading up to the feast, you'll remember that Jesus proclaimed the first of his I am's. I am the bread of life. He was referring to the manna that God provided his people to eat in the wilderness and was claiming to be the fulfillment of that Old Testament illustration. If you feed upon me, you will never go hungry. I will sustain you, nourish you, strengthen you, save you. Wow, what a claim. Later in the context of the water ceremony, we saw that when Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And again, Jesus was drawing a conclusion for them. The rock that provided the water in the desert was pointing to him. If you drink of me, you will never thirst again. Your search for the Messiah is over. Only I can quench your parched soul. And thirdly, here in our passage, today, Jesus makes another claim. He says, I am the light of the world. So what's the reference this time for a Jewish person having just come off of this amazing celebration and festival, highlight of the year? What is Jesus claiming to fulfill now? Jesus was teaching according to verse 20, if you look there, in the treasury of the temple, the place where monetary offerings were given to the Lord. The temple treasury was located in the court of women, and it was also there in the court of women that during the Feast of Booths, four gigantic candelabra, each with four bowls of oil, was fired up each night. And the light was so great that it lit up for all of Jerusalem to see this great and grand light shining from the temple. It lit up the sky during this festival celebration. The significance of this blazing light was to represent the pillar of fire that led the people in the wilderness during their exodus from Egypt and for the subsequent 40 years ultimately to the promised land. When the final night had come and gone of the festival, Jesus was standing before these great lights that had now gone out and proclaimed, I am the light of the world. In the book of Exodus chapter 13 we read, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. A desert is a treacherous place. God led his people out of the slavery in Egypt into the hostile environment of a desert. The Christian journey can feel like that sometimes, can't it? I've heard many testimonies from fellow believers who talk about being saved out of their bondage to sin only to enter into a life of suffering as a Christian. Some, perhaps in their weaker moments, wonder if they didn't have it better before they were saved. 
Israel felt this way on many occasions during their wilderness experience. But God does not leave his children without provision. We've all seen the movies of people trying to survive the difficulties of the desert. The landscape constantly changes as the wind blows and sand making any sense of direction almost impossible because of the different formations. The intense sun beats down and makes the heat of the day unbearable, and the complete darkness and frigid temperatures of the night are no friend to a pilgrim. So here in the desert, in the blistering heat of the day, God led his people with a pillar of cloud over them providing shade and clear direction on their journey. And at night, that cloud becomes a pillar of fire, keeping them warm and providing guidance so that they might even travel at night. Listen to these other references to the pillar of cloud and fire in the Old Testament. First, when Pharaoh and his armies were in pursuit of Israel at the Red Sea. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. Then later, speaking of the tabernacle of worship, the scripture says, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, They did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. The term angel of the Lord refers to a physical, pre-incarnate manifestation of God in the Old Testament. It's often referred to as a theophany. What Israel had in the cloud and fire was not simply some kind of natural phenomenon, but the very presence of God leading them 24-7 through the 40 years of the desert wandering, providing comfort, shade, warmth, and light, leading them and defending them from harm. Isn't this exactly what Jesus provides for his people? Jesus was declaring that the pillar of fire in the desert was pointing to him. I am the one that shows the way to the promised lamb. I am a shade by day and a light by night. I am the great protector of God's people. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Remember the words we sang earlier in our second hymn this morning? Round each habitation hovering, see the cloud and fire appear for a glory and a covering, showing that the Lord is near. Thus, deriving from their banner light by night and shade by day, safe they feed upon the manna which he gives them when they pray. John Newton, the writer of that hymn, a pastor, theologian, the author of Amazing Grace, penned this hymn with a full understanding that these Old Testament events in the life of the nation of Israel were pointing ahead as beautiful portraits of Christ and his church. 
Jesus was leaving no room for ambiguity. With each of these audacious statements, he was further dividing the opinions that were being formed about him. He was drawing a line in the sand. The concept of the light of the world wasn't a foreign idea to Jesus' audience any more than it would be for us. Nearly every religion or human philosophy understands that basic metaphor. Light is equated with life and wisdom and knowledge and order. Darkness is equated with death, foolishness, ignorance, and chaos. I mean, even the Jews' own creation narrative begins with light. Genesis 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God was the source of original light. If you've forgotten, remember that the sun, moon, and stars weren't created until day four. God was the light at creation. Jesus, the light of the world, was the light at creation. Further in chapter one of John's gospel, the evangelist sheds some light upon this topic. Forgive that, I couldn't resist. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life, we read it earlier, was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This light of the world was predicted also by one of the Jews' most revered prophets, Isaiah. In chapter 60 of his prophecy, we read, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Can you imagine the excitement of the Apostle John when he was sitting in exile on the Isle of Patmos, seeing a vision And seeing that prophecy that he had known all his life from one of the favorite prophets, Isaiah, come true in the future? Listen to what he saw. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. Remember Jesus' words. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
Jesus was claiming to be the light at the beginning before the sun was created and the light at the end of time when the sun will not be needed, the alpha and the omega. Well, there was, as we would expect, an immediate reaction to this proposition by Jesus. Their first reaction was to call him a liar and to call into question his claim as one that has no supporting witnesses. Look at verse 13. You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jewish law required someone else to corroborate testimony. But Jesus responds with a rebuttal. Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. What an irony that the Pharisees call into question the integrity of the one who formed the laws of the universe. They had no legitimate reason to question Jesus' word, except the reasoning which was based on their own darkness and ignorance. Light in many ways is equal with truth, for light dispels things that are hidden in darkness. Light reveals what cannot be seen. When the religious leaders challenge Jesus' statement that he is the light by calling him a liar, Jesus turns it around on them. He continues, you judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. The Pharisees were making their conclusions based on the faulty premise that all truth can be grasped by human reason and understanding. Things don't change a lot, do they? Jesus tells them that his understanding is of divine origin. He sees things they cannot. Well, since they can't challenge Jesus intellectually or theologically, they stoop to question his credibility and attempt to humiliate him. They begin with, where is your father? Highlighting the absence of a human father for Jesus. I mean, after all, if they did not acknowledge Jesus' divine birth, then illegitimacy would be the natural conclusion to their question. Jesus proceeds to make some direct charges against the Pharisees' own spirituality, calling into question their spiritual condition. Look at what he says to them. You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These are religious leaders that had spent their lives studying God, studying the Father. And then Jesus delivers a horrible verdict on the Pharisees. I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus pronounces eternal judgment on them in their current unrepentant condition and if the Pharisees hadn't been nasty enough, now they turn this statement on Jesus when they say, will he kill himself since he says where I am going you cannot come? Because you see, the Jews believed that if you killed yourself, you were going to the very darkest and most horrible place in hell. 
This was the charge they were laying against Jesus. They were twisting his words into condemning himself. After all, they, the Pharisees, would be going to be with God in eternity, right? So Jesus must be the one going to hell. Jesus continues, you are from below and I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Jesus takes his I am statement a step further when he says, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. For this phrase, I am he, is the same identifier that God gave about himself to Moses from the burning bush in Exodus. Tell them, I am, has sent you. If they still weren't getting the gist of Jesus' claim, he was beginning to make it unmistakable. He would say it again when speaking of being lifted up in a couple of verses. And if it weren't crystal clear then, he would make sure it was in the last two verses of chapter 8. Take a look there. Inciting them to kill him for blasphemy. There we read, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. John's gospel record leaves no room for a Jesus who was a good man, an insightful prophet, or a wise teacher. No, Jesus is either the Word made flesh, the bread of life, the water of life, the light of the world, God himself, the great I am, or he must be silenced. This line in the sand hasn't been erased over the past 2,000 years. The winds of time have not blurred this distinction. Well-meaning men and women who are themselves like the Pharisees wandering around the darkness might try to make this Jesus more palatable to the world. But we're confronted with the same questions today. Is Jesus a liar? Where does he come from? Who's his father? Where did he go? Is he the I am? Is he God? I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Only those who are granted the light of life will be able to answer these questions correctly. Only those who follow Jesus will have the light of life. Everyone else, like the Pharisees, will remain in darkness and die in their sins. Jesus continues in verse 28 with these prophetic, earth-shattering words that foreshadow the death of the light. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. There's that phrase again. And that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. John records two other times in his gospel when Jesus speaks of his being lifted up. And they can help us in our understanding of this phrase. 
First, you'll remember early in our study in John chapter 3 in the encounter with Nicodemus. Jesus uses something Nicodemus would have been very familiar with. And he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus was referring to a time when God's people had rebelled against him in the wilderness. He sent poisonous serpents against them as judgment. And once again, in an act of grace, God provided a way of salvation for them. He instructed Moses to make a bronze serpent, the object of their judgment, and raise it up on a stick. And all the Israelites had to do was to look upon that serpent in faith, and they would live. Jesus told Nicodemus that he, Jesus, was the fulfillment of that Old Testament example. Again, in chapter 12, before Jesus begins his journey to the cross, he says, and I when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. It is clear that when Jesus speaks of his being lifted up, he is speaking of his crucifixion. The light of the world is lifted up on a cross to become sin and darkness. In the other Gospels, we read that on the cross, as Jesus is dying, that darkness comes over the face of the earth. In the the words of that well-loved contemporary hymn in Christ alone, light of the world by darkness slain. The significance of this moment in history cannot be overstated. It is the watershed moment of the ages, the humiliation and exaltation of the God-man, the second person of the Trinity, meet together as he is lifted up before the world to be a sacrifice for sin. R.C. Sproul says, in common language, the terms exaltation and humiliation stand as polar opposites. One of the most magnificent glories of God's revealed truth and most poignant ironies is that in the cross, these two polar opposites merge and are reconciled. In his humiliation, we find our exaltation. Our shame is replaced by his glory. The songwriter had it right when he wrote, my sinful self, my only shame, my glory, all the cross. We may be tempted to look away from the cross of suffering and be ashamed of it. To look away from Christ's humiliation on our behalf. But we cannot separate the cross from his glorious victory over death in his resurrection and his triumphal ascension. We must not separate them on some chronological timeline of theology as though one is bad and the other is good. 
F.F. Bruce states it this way, his being glorified is not a reward or recompense for his crucifixion, it inheres in his crucifixion. These aspects of our Savior are intertwined in a way that is inseparable. Remember Paul's words to the Galatians, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. John finishes this section in his gospel with this short sentence. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. What a glorious statement. Think about it. In the midst of the darkened hearts of the Pharisees and others who were out to get him, those that were challenging his authority and demeaning him, those who were attempting to shut him down and find a reason to kill the light, in the middle of that confrontation, Jesus zeroed in like a laser in the night, penetrating the darkness all around him. The Savior always has an eye towards his people His beloved bride are everywhere, and his love sonnet breaks through the ugly clamor of darkness as a song in the night, drawing the hearts of those he loves. The light of the world gives the words of life and light and pierces even the deepest soul darkness. Where he shines, night must give way to sunrise, and gloom is dispelled with the bright rays of salvation. Is the lover of your soul singing to you today? Do you hear his voice? Can you see a glimmer of light peeking into your darkened soul? Call upon him in faith. He is mighty to save. Flee the darkness and run into the sunshine. For today is the day of salvation. Confess Jesus as Lord and be saved. Beloved, darkness is all around us. One day it's the opioid epidemic. The next it's another school shooting. This week it's the skyrocketing rate of suicide in our society. Hopelessness, despair, pointlessness, darkness abound. What's going on? Why is the world going mad? And where is God in all of this? In his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Jesus taught about his kingdom and addressed his people this way. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Wait a minute. I thought Jesus was the light of the world. Why does he call us the light of the world? In his humanity, Jesus was limited to the confines of a body. His earthly existence was very provincial. It was in a very small area of the world. His plan all along was to ascend to heaven's throne, 
and to send his Holy Spirit into the hearts of his people to enable us to be the light of the world wherever we go. We are his ambassadors, placed here to reflect the glory of his light and life. His kingdom is everywhere, and his light is everywhere, because his people are everywhere. So then the natural question comes, children of the light, those who he has saved and made to be the little lights in this world, how's your flame doing? Is it shining brightly upon a tall stand for all to see? Is the Lord dispelling the darkness around you with the light he has given you, or are you hiding your light under a basket, keeping it all to yourself? In my own self-righteousness, I am quick to lay the blame for the darkness in our society at the feet of those who live in the darkness. How absurd is that? But Jesus doesn't tell us to complain about those who by default are born into darkness even as we were. Rather, he tells us to let our lights shine before others so that they might see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. So as the ones who possess the light, how well are we doing taking that light into the dark? As individuals and as a church, how much light are we bringing to bear in our sphere of influence? If the darkness is growing in our society, is it more likely that the fault lies with those who are still groping their way in the night or with those who possess the light but are unwilling to take it into the dark places of the world? The light of the world was lifted up to become darkness and death, that we might obtain light and life. This is not a message to keep to ourselves. May we draw upon the one eternal source of light to enable us to proclaim his good news. We can't shine by ourselves. God calls us to reflect his glory and light not to muster up our own. And if we're not feeding upon the bread of heaven and drinking from the fountain of living water, our lights will not burn brightly with the glory of Jesus. Oh, church, the growing darkness of our society is not a battle to retreat from. It is an opportunity to dispel the darkness with the glorious light of the gospel with which we have been entrusted. Perhaps, however, you are a child of the light who today can't even imagine shining brightly again. Maybe you're in a place of suffering or sin, darkness, and you feel as though your flame is desperately flicking and barely staying alive. Jesus speaks the same words to you. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He will not leave you or forsake you, Christian. If you are in the darkness, he is there too. 
Remember, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Has there been any other who has known the depth of soul darkness that the light of the world has known? No, brothers and sisters, for when he was lifted up, he was despised and rejected. He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, and it was the will of his Father to crush him and to put him to grief. Jesus did this for you and me. The light of the world is not afraid of the darkness. He conquered the darkness. Charles Spurgeon was a man of God who knew what it was to feel as though he often lived in the darkness of unresolved suffering. He is known as the Prince of Preachers. This is a lengthy quote, but I believe it's profound. So hang in there and listen to this quote of Spurgeon's on this subject. Consider Jesus further still. Do you see him in your imagination nailed to yonder cross? The earth startles with affright. A God is groaning on a cross. What? Does not this dishonor Christ? No, it honors him. Each of the thorns becomes brilliant in his diadem of glory. The nails are forged into his scepter, and his wounds do clothe him with the purple of empire. O Christian, it was not from heights of bliss on earth that your master strode to bliss eternal, but from depths of woe that he mounted up to glory. Oh, what a stride was that, when at one mighty step from the grave to the throne of the highest, the man Christ, the God, did gloriously ascend. Believer, there is comfort for you here, if you will take it. If Christ was exalted through his degradation, so shall you be. Count not your steps to triumph by your steps upward, but by those which are seemingly downward. The way to heaven is downhill. Fear not. He who glorified Christ because he stooped shall glorify you. For after he has caused you to endure a while, he will give you a crown of life which fades not away. Jesus said, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I am the light of the world Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. Let's pray. O light of the world, darkness is all around us. And yet you have shown in our hearts and enlivened us to a new hope, quickened us to new life, and provided light in the darkness. Father, inflame that fire. Fan it into a flame that burns brightly for you. Enable us through the power of your Holy Spirit to live lives 
that shine light in our dark world. Our world needs this. We need this. Use our church not just as a building set upon this hill, but as lives that are aflame for you on this hill, that all might see the glory of Christ here and come to know you out of the darkness into light. And Father, for those that find themselves suffering in the night, Help them to cling to you and to see you, the light of the world, who is with them. Father, enable them to have the faith and the ability to understand that you are there in the darkness with them so that they might renew their hope. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen.